Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and my goal is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. This week, we're going to be studying the book of Galatians. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now, let's start out with some background. Galatians is very similar to the book of Romans in theme, because Paul happens to be dealing with a lot of the same types of issues that the saints in Rome had. And the main issue, again, is the Jewish Christians are demanding that the Gentile Christians live certain aspects of the Mosaic law in order to be considered true disciples. So they felt that they needed to be circumcised, that they needed to observe the Jewish feasts and holidays and keep the more ritual parts of the Mosaic law. But this issue had already been addressed and resolved in the Jerusalem Council, that that this was not a necessary part of becoming a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. And yet, some of those Jewish members could not let it go. So Paul is going to confront those false teachers and those that are being persuaded by them to help them understand that it's faith and relying on the grace of Christ that makes a Christian, not circumcision and and these other things. Now, that issue, of course, is probably not going to be super relevant or, or even interesting to those you teach, especially if it's the youth. So I like to take a broader approach to Galatians and examine the issue through the lens of this question. What do we do when somebody or the world seeks to draw us away from the teachings and leadership of the prophets and apostles? Because that, that's the situation that the members are dealing with here. Certain individuals are calling the revelations of the prophets and apostles into question and saying that they know better and that the leadership of the church is getting it wrong. And, and sadly, a number of the members are getting caught up in that pressure and turning their backs on the brethren. Now, is that a relevant issue to our day? I believe so. I I do see this out there. Our beliefs, policies, and our church leaders are being challenged daily by the whims of the world. And there are many out there that are seeking to change the minds of the people that you're teaching, to conform to their opinions and their views. And that goes for youth and adults. With the advent of technology, never have we been more vulnerable to the influences and attitudes of the world around us. And I believe that the book of Galatians can help us to better navigate that world and learn to be in it, but not of it. So for an icebreaker an object lesson. I would set out two objects in front of my class, a jar of jelly and a rock. And I'd ask, which of these two objects do you think God wants us to be like when it comes to living the gospel and why? And you're likely to get a variety of responses and There's no right or wrong answers here to that question. Uh, They may interpret the analogy 
differently than I do or that you do. But whether somebody in the class shares something similar to this or you decide to add it yourself, you could make the following point. I believe that God wants us to be more like a rock than the jelly. Jelly will always conform to the container that you put it in. And, and at this point, I'll pull out a jello mold that, that I found on Amazon that, that's in the shape of a Lego person, a minifigure. And I'll put a link in the video description below where, where you can get one of these. And they're not that expensive. And at that point, I'll open the jar of jelly and start to spoon some of it into the mold. And I say, if I were to scoop some jelly into this mold, what's it going to do? It's going to ooze and flow and fill in all of the parts of the mold. It will conform to the shape that it's given. If I were to change the shape of the container, the jelly would also change its shape. It has no strength of its own. It borrows its form from its surroundings. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be the type of people that just conforms to whatever opinions, beliefs, or practices that the majority of others have around us. Just go with the flow. Seek for others to give us our shape. No, no, we want to be rocks. We want to have integrity, strength, character. If I try to put the rock into the mold, it's not going to change it. It's going to retain its shape, no matter how hard you try to push it in. It stands firm. I believe that God wants us to be rocks, not jelly people. A quick suggestion. With that jello mold, you could make a bunch of jello people for your class. That one for each member to eat at the end of the lesson, if you like. And you could also find some nice-looking rocks and write the phrase, be a rock, in permanent marker on the outside. And give one of those to each student as well. And that can be a fun way to make the message of this lesson just a bit more memorable. Gosh, many of the Galatian saints are having this problem. They're becoming jelly people. Which is kind of funny, because if you change just one letter in the name Galatians, it becomes gelations, like gel or jelly. Many of them are conforming to the beliefs of the more popular or charismatic people around them, which sadly conflicts with the revelations from God to the church leaders. The people are being tempted to just go with the flow. And Paul's letter to the Galatians is going to help us to know what we can do when we feel pressure from the world to conform. And when this kind of situation happens, we can be one of two things, but not both. And Paul's not going to call them jelly people and rocks, but he's going to use some scriptural terms instead. Let's see if you can find those terms. Can you find the two types of people that we can be in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10? And here's what that verse says. For do I now persuade, and the GST changes that word to please, for do I now please men 
or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So what are the two things that I can be? We can be men pleasers, jelly people, and you could point to the jelly jar at that point, or servants of Christ, point to the rock. The great personal question of the book of Galatians then is, which am I striving to be? And I found that this can be a great little hook to hang the rest of your lesson on. A, a very effective way to approach the book of Galatians. Men pleasers versus servants of Christ. And to help them to see the relevancy of that early in your lesson, you can do this brief activity. We're going to brainstorm here. Remember that the issue the Galatians are struggling with is that some of them are saying that the Gentile members need to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law in order to be true Christians. When this was not what the church leaders were teaching. That was their issue. But what are some of our issues today? What are some of the issues where worldly views conflict with those of the church? And I'm sure that, that they'll come up with some, so many. And they could vary depending on the age of your audience. For adults, some of the examples could be uh, what we do with the Sabbath day. The world says one thing, the servants of Christ say another. Uh, gay marriage, the world says one thing, servants of Christ say another. Women's issues, there are some out there who feel that the church is getting it wrong and that we need to change our policies. Servants of Christ don't agree. For younger people, maybe media choices are, are a big one. What the world says is appropriate and, and okay and normal to consume is different from what the servants of Christ say is appropriate. Swearing, the language that the world uses, is different from the language that the servants of Christ would have us use. Modesty. The styles of the world are different from what the servants of Christ would have us wear. Cheating, what the majority of young people do in their schoolwork, is different from what the servants of Christ would have us do. And on and on. I mean, I think we can all agree that the commandments, standards, policies, and beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ run counter to what many in the world believe. The Church does not go with the flow. Thank heavens, it does not conform. And just like with the Galatians, there are even members of the church that struggle with that dynamic and find it difficult to go against the grain and stand firm, like rocks against the molds of the world. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Have you ever encountered somebody that tried to change your mind or challenge your beliefs? Or have you ever felt that pressure from the adversary or within your own mind as your natural man struggles to convince you to conform to the world? Well, never fear. Paul's going to help us out. He's going to give us the vision or seek to inspire us to be rocks, servants of Christ. And he's going to delineate or draw the line between these two types. 
Hopefully, we are the type of saints that want to be servants of Christ, not men-pleasers. And so as I've studied the book of Galatians, I found at least nine different principles that can help us to recognize the difference between the two types. And I'm going to give you two options here for search activities. One, you could approach these nine points as a class where you walk through these verses and ask them the questions as a teacher. And as you go, you can encourage them to write the differences between men-pleasers and servants of Christ on this handout. Or you could divide your class into nine groups with the same number of people in those groups as much as is possible. And then print out the following references and accompanying questions and distribute them to the different groups. And then give them these instructions. Read your questions. Read your reference, looking for possible answers to those questions. And then discuss your answers and have somebody write down your group's thoughts. And choose a spokesperson that is willing to share the answers with the class. Then give them about three to five minutes to do the activity. Go from group to group, having the spokesperson share that group's thoughts. And while they share, the rest of the class should follow along in those verses. And to help you as the teacher, let me go through each of the questions and, and give you a brief thought or two on each one. Galatians 1, 8 through 9. How does a servant of Christ react when somebody tells them that they don't need to live a certain commandment or that the church is wrong on some issue? And how do you think men-pleasers would react? Here are the verses. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. How does a servant of Christ react then? They accursed. it which I know is kind of a strong word. I don't think that means that we curse people who oppose the gospel, but we don't entertain it. We set it aside, cut it off. Not the person, but the idea. So if somebody comes along and tries to convince us that pornography is not that big of a deal, that nobody really gets hurt by it, then we can cut that off. We can accurse that idea. No, no, I can't accept that and have no fear in standing firm in that conviction, like a rock. But what about men-pleasers? They're very concerned about what others think. They begin to wonder if the other side might actually be right as they entertain the thought. Men-pleasers question the commandment. Galatians 1, 11-12 and verse 16. Where does a servant of Christ get their beliefs, opinions, and views? And where do men-pleasers get them? But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, 
neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And 16, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. So where do servants of Christ get their beliefs? Not from man, but by revelation. Whereas where do men pleasers get them? From flesh and blood. I guess we all have to decide where we're going to go for our, our beliefs and opinions. We can choose God or Google, faith or Facebook, Christ or the crowd, the spirit or celebrities. Paul encourages us to go to Jesus Christ, not flesh and blood. Galatians 2, 2. And there's a little note to start this one out. Before Paul decided to go out and preach, he went to Jerusalem to talk with Peter and the other apostles to make sure that he was doing the right thing. So where does a servant of Christ turn to know if he should do something or not? And where do men pleasers turn? And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run, or had run in vain. Where does a servant of Christ turn for confirmation on what he should believe or do? The prophets and apostles. Now Paul felt from the Spirit what he thought he should do, but he also went a step further. He wanted to confirm that his preaching wasn't in vain. So he decided to make the journey all the way to Jerusalem to confer with the leaders of the church before he acted. He made checking with the prophets a part of his decision-making process. So should we. If we have a decision that we're not quite sure which way to go, then we should check with the words of the prophets. So, should I go and see this movie? Well, what would the brethren say? If President Nelson were in the room, how do you imagine he would respond? What are my thoughts and feelings on LGBTQ issues? What do the brethren say? They surely can offer us some guidance. On the other hand, where do men pleasers go for confirmation? They look to their friends, their co-workers, the majority. What do most people think? Fortunately, the crowd is not always right. There are many, many examples from history where what the majority believed was simply not true. For many years, the majority of the world thought that the sun revolved around the earth. They were wrong. For many years, a majority felt that slavery was justified. They were wrong. The majority of scientists were sure for many years, that time was an absolute constant. Einstein showed that they were wrong. Just because a majority of people believe something doesn't make it true. Galatians 2, 4-5 
How do servants of Christ react to those who try to pull them away from the gospel? How do you think a man-pleaser would react? And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. How does a servant of Christ react? They give no place, no, not for an hour. They, they don't suffer fools. They, they don't spend a lot of time digging through the opposition. If they do spend time searching out the opposing view, which is still okay in my book, and they make sure that they spend at least an equal amount of time in gospel truth. If you're going to spend time reading anti-faith material, give the scriptures at least the same amount of time. If you're going to search the internet for criticisms of the church or the brethren, spend at least the same amount of time reading their general conference addresses. Or better yet, trust me and, and others who've been through that kind of material, that, that it's not really worth your time. Men pleasers, on the other hand, they dive headlong into that kind of thing and spend hours digesting every possible argument against the gospel. And they may go days or, or weeks without prayer or scripture study. And in that process, their faith steadily erodes away. Galatians 2.20 Servants of Christ live for who? Who do you think men-pleasers live for? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The servants of Christ, not surprisingly, live for Christ. And more importantly, Christ lives in them. Jesus' life and love flows through their veins. You might remember that talk that Elder Uchtdorf gave a number of years ago entitled, We Are His Hands. May I also suggest that we are His heart, His mind, and His soul. His life is manifested through our thoughts and our words and our deeds. This is one of the most important ways in which Christ lives. So when I sing, I know that my Redeemer lives, I don't just mean that I know that he was resurrected. I also mean that his gospel, his love, his atonement, and his desire to serve and bless others lives within me. Men-pleasers, on the other hand, live for the world, and the world lives in them. They embrace its attitudes and, therefore, its actions. The world lives through them. Therefore, not only do they live in the world, but of the world. Galatians 3.27 Who do servants of Christ put on or try very hard to act like? 
And who do men-pleasers put on or try very hard to act like? For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Servants of Christ put on Christ. And we talked about this idea back in Romans 13. We put on Christ when we decide that we're going to try and act as he would. We stop worrying so much about feeling a certain way and begin focusing on acting a certain way, like putting on a mask. When we have a decision to make, we, as Doctrine and Covenants 636 says, look unto Christ in that thought. Then, if we pair that verse with another verse in the Doctrine and Covenants 1923, we learn of him and listen to his words, and then we walk in the meekness of his spirit. Or in other words, we act as Christ would act. The more we do that, the more we put on the mask of Christ, the more we, we change on the inside as well. Men-pleasers, on the other hand, put on the world. They look unto the world in every thought. And rather than asking, what would Jesus do? They ask, what does everybody else seem to be doing? Instead of asking what is right, they ask what is popular. Instead of asking what is best for all, they ask what is best for me. Galatians 4.16 How do men-pleasers view church leaders or parents that confront them for their behavior? How do you think servants of Christ view leaders or parents that confront them? Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Men-pleasers view those that confront them in love as their enemy. Inevitably, when we are making bad choices, those that truly have our best interest at heart may feel the need to confront us. The men-pleasers are often going to turn on those individuals, accuse them of being judgmental, and trying to control them. Teenagers are especially susceptible to this mistake. Their parents become the enemy. Their church leaders become the enemy. The prophet becomes the enemy. And instead, they turn to their friends or the world for validation. Unfortunately, their friends in the world are, are usually going to be more self-interested than sincere. That they're going to tell you what you want to hear in order to get what they want. And I remember teaching a young woman who began a serious relationship with a young man that was not a good influence on her. But she defended him, saying that nobody understood that he was actually good for her and truly loved her. So her parents confronted her. Her bishop confronted her. Her seminary teacher even confronted her. How did she treat as the enemy, while, while this boy was her true friend. Long story short, she became pregnant, and shortly thereafter, the boy lost interest in her and ended the relationship. It was at that point that she finally recognized who her true friends were and her true enemies. The adversary is very good at blinding us in this way. 
Now, servants of Christ recognize their true friends and their true enemies. They're not going to be blinded by the adversary. Now, certainly, servants of Christ make mistakes and commit sins. They're not perfect. But when they're confronted by those that love them, they, they understand the motivation behind the correction or the rebuke. They don't make enemies out of them just because they're willing to tell them the truth. Galatians 5.16 How does a servant of Christ walk? How does a man-pleaser walk? This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Servants of Christ walk in the Spirit. And what does walking in the Spirit look like? Well, remember the two sides of our nature that King Benjamin told us about. The natural man and the saint. Those that walk in the Spirit do the things that strengthen the saint within them and weaken the natural man. They seek to feed the saint and starve the natural man. How do they feed the saint? Uh, what are what are the saint's favorite dishes? An order of obedience with a side of sacrifice? A heaping plateful of prayer? Sprinkled with service? Spoonfuls of scripture study? And all washed down with a glass of gratitude? Men-pleasers walk in the lust of the flesh. They feed the natural man and starve the saint. And they give in to their impulses and become complacent in spiritual things. And they feed it with a buffet of selfishness, pride, anger, ingratitude, and lust. A chakarama sin. Galatians 5, 19-23 What kinds of things does the attitude of men-pleasing eventually lead to? What kinds of things does being a servant of Christ lead to? Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And by this point, if you're not sure whether you want to become a men-pleaser or a servant of Christ, perhaps this list will help you make that decision. These verses describe what lies at the other end of these two attitudes. If I decide to become a man-pleaser, eventually it's going to lead to the things described in verses 19 through 21. But if I become a servant of Christ, then I receive love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Look closely at those two lists. Which do you want more of in your life? Choose accordingly. Well, after each group has shared its findings, 
you can bring everyone back together to make one final point. What will be the final result of cultivating this servant of Christ mindset? The incredible thing about being a servant of Christ is that you don't stay a servant forever. God has a greater plan in store for them and never intended us to just be merely servants in his kingdom. What do servants of Christ become according to Galatians 4, 6-7? And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So what do we become? Sons and daughters of God. And not in the sense that we're all children of God or, or spirit children of our heavenly parents, but true sons and daughters in his kingdom that bear the family resemblance, that take on the qualities of their parents rather than the world. We become heirs of God through Christ. An heir is someone who receives an inheritance from their parents or their grandparents. So God has some great blessings to pass on to us, a, a heritage to bestow. And what does he have to pass on to us? His power, his character, his way of life. This is God's hope and desire for every one of us. It's our destiny. He doesn't expect us to stay mere mortals. He wants to make us into gods, beings like him. But we can never fulfill that destiny if we're too worried about pleasing and following the world. So our truth here, if I seek to be a servant of Christ rather than a man-pleaser, then I will become a son or daughter of God with a divine inheritance. To liken the scriptures, what gives you strength to stand firm before the pressures and opinions of the world? Well, as difficult as it is to go against the grain, I believe that the rewards are more than worth the effort. The inheritance that we stand to receive is of far greater value than anything we give up by standing firm against the world. God will reward the strong. Therefore, we must be servants of Christ, not men-pleasers. We've got to be rocks not jelly people. All right, now, now there's more to the book of Galatians than just that one thought. Galatians also has some great power phrases that are definitely worth our consideration. And so here's another quick lesson that you could do to cover some of those great power phrases. The icebreaker for this lesson does double duty as a search activity as well. Have your students look up the verses on the left and then try to match them to the picture they feel best represents the message of that verse. So here we go. 
For chapter 3, verse 1, the match is F. The witch's hat and broom, with the power phrase being, Who hath bewitched you? Chapter 4, verse 18, the match is D. The good things sign. Power phrase, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Chapter 5, verse 1. The match is C, the chains breaking. The power phrase, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Chapter 6, verse 1. The match is A, the helping hand being extended. Power phrase, if a man be overtaken in a fault, restore such a one. Chapter 6, verse 3, the match is B, the stick figure with his chest puffed out, in a prideful stance. And the power phrase here, if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And then chapter 6, verse 7, the match is E, the cornfield. And the power phrase there, what ye sow, you shall also Now, I would write all those power phrases up on the board or display a slide with each of them and and then invite them to pick their favorite verse from that list or the one that intrigues them the most and then give them some time to study or ponder it a little more deeply and then be ready to share why they like it or what they learn from it. Give them about three to four minutes to pick and prepare themselves. And then either call on some to share or ask for volunteers. And be ready and willing to share some of your own thoughts as well. And a quick teacher suggestion here. One way to get students to share, other than just waiting for volunteers every time, is to tell them that you're going to randomly select some of them to share. But you can do it in a number of fun or creative ways. The classic is to put each of their names on a separate popsicle stick and then pull one of the sticks out of a cup or your pocket. Then whoever's name is chosen is assigned to share. I call them the sticks of destiny, although my students have been known to refer to them as the sticks of doom as well. But I've also done this uh, uh, more recently as my high school students sometimes view the popsicle stick idea as being too primary-ish. So I discovered that you can order a deck of cards that are completely blank, a deck of blank cards. And then I just write my students' names on the faces of those blank cards and then invite a student to pick a card, any card. And whoever's name is selected is the one who's assigned to share. And I'll put an Amazon link in the video description below if you're interested in that idea. Or one more idea. If you have an internet connection where you teach, you can go to the following website where you can type in each of your students' names into a wheel and then spin the wheel by clicking on it. The name of the student that the wheel lands on is the one to share. And I'll put a link to that website in the video description below. Although there are ads that pop up on that website, so so keep that in mind if you choose to use it. But let's take a quick look at each of these power phrases together. Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And I like the word bewitching in this verse. Satan is very good at what he does, and I sometimes refer to him as the greatest magician. He's good at bewitching foolish people, like the Galatians. And I'm a bit of an amateur magician myself, and I know how it works. The goal of magic is to deceive your audience, to make things appear differently from what they really are. And Satan is a master at this. A little sleight of hand here, a puff of smoke over there, and voila, commandments look like restrictions. Scripture looks like ancient, irrelevant scribblings. And prophets appear to be spiritual tyrants rather than spiritual giants. And the greatest trick of all, he's so good that he can even make evil look good and good look evil. My advice, don't fall for it. <laughs> a few years back, there was a show on TV called Magic's Greatest Secrets Finally Revealed which made a lot of magicians angry because it showed everyone a lot of the secrets behind some of magic's most popular illusions. Well, guess what? We've got something like that, too. The scriptures could be titled, Satan's Greatest Secrets Finally Revealed. They show us his ways. We learn from the mistakes of those that he was able to deceive and manipulate. Or we learn by the example of righteous scripture heroes who were able to resist him. If we study them, we won't be fooled. Just like if you've watched how the magic trick is done, you're never going to be deceived by it in the future. Chapter 4, verse 18. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. Now, you all know the Doctrine and Covenants version of this verse, right? Doctrine and Covenants 58, verse 27. Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness. And I love this idea. We should be zealously, anxiously engaged in doing something good. And it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a spiritual endeavor all the time. Just get out there and do something good. Develop your talents. Do an act of service educate yourself, work, fix something, get involved with a challenging project. For all of the complaining that we do about work or school or exercise, it's been proven in numerous studies that people are happier when they're engaged in some kind of active endeavor. That we actually don't find as much enjoyment and passive entertainment as we think we do. Doesn't mean that we don't need time for rest or relaxation and even some mindless internet surfing or video games. But instead of spending three hours playing a video game, maybe we could just play for one and then go spend time with our families. Instead of taking a four-hour nap on Sunday, take a one-hour nap and then go visit some relatives or the retirement home. Instead of endlessly scrolling through Instagram, scroll for half an hour and then go out and shoot some hoops. If you want to be happier, more productive, more fulfilled in life, we go out and zealously affect ourselves in good things. 
chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. God is all about freedom and liberty, while Satan is all about bondage. It's easy sometimes to fall into the trap of thinking that commandments and obedience and rules are actually restricting our freedom. But, but they're the exact things that create it. What are commandments other than the instruction book for happiness? It doesn't mean that doing the right thing doesn't come with the cost. Doing the right thing is usually harder in the short term. But in the long run, it leads to more and more freedom. Doing the wrong thing is usually easier in the short term, but restricting in the long term. A good metaphor for this would be exercising and eating right. In the short term, it's harder. But in the long run, it makes you more and more free, active, healthy, and increases your chances of having a longer life. On the other hand, it's easier to be lazy and to eat junk food. But in the long run, leads to disease, lethargy, and a shortened lifespan. That's the same with spiritual matters. The more righteous you become, the freer you become. The more wicked, the more limited. That's one of Satan's most effective tricks. Uh, he promises you freedom, saying things like, the church has too many rules, too much restriction. Are you going to let a bunch of old men in Salt Lake run your life? Go be free. Do whatever feels good. Go with the flow. All the while, he's chuckling and wrapping us up in chains. Ask the person addicted to drugs, pornography, gambling, or alcohol how free they feel. Ask the man in prison, because he's lived a life of dishonesty, how free he feels. Ask the young man or young woman who have broken the law of chastity, and now they're going to be teen parents, how free they feel. Satan hates agency. He hates freedom. He tried to destroy it in the pre-mortal life, and he's still trying to destroy it now. So let's not fall for it. Let's not let him bewitch us. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So what do we do with somebody who's made a mistake, who's sinned, who's strayed from the church or is not making the best of decisions? Do we abandon them? Do we walk away saying that we can't afford to be tainted by their poor choices? If they've been overtaken in a fault, seek to restore them. Try to help them. Be a support. Be a friend. But there is a caution. He says to consider yourself first lest thou also be tempted. Be careful that you don't get sucked into their world and end up making the same mistakes. So if somebody I love, or who is my friend, starts to make bad choices, do I seek to restore them, or do I watch out for myself lest I be tempted? And I think it depends. If somebody falls into a raging river, what's the worst way to save them? Jumping in yourself and trying to pull them out you may drown yourself. The best way to help them is to stay on the shore and throw something to them or reach out for them from a strong footing. 
in a spiritual sense, if you've reached out your hand to that person who is struggling and you're lifting them, then hold on with all your might and seek to restore that individual. But if at any time you feel that they're pulling you down, that you're not strong enough to lift them, but you find yourself slipping into those things, then I think that's the time to let go, as hard as it may be. Consider yourself, lest thou also be tempted. Chapter 6, verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. And this is such a hard thing for us to do sometimes. It's very easy for us to think that we are something. One of Satan's greatest tools in deceiving the righteous is pride. A prideful person really struggles to look up to God because he's always spending so much time looking down on others. Whenever I feel tempted to think that I'm something, that I'm better than somebody else, or that I've made it, I try to remember Galatians 6.3. And it's true. I am nothing. Anything that I've ever been able to accomplish is because my Heavenly Father made it possible. And then chapter 6, verse 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The law of the harvest. We've seen it before. If you plant potatoes, you're not going to grow watermelons. If you plant weeds, you're not going to grow flowers. If all you plant is negative thoughts and a pessimistic attitude, don't be surprised if your life is miserable. If you plant the seed of faith, you'll reap a testimony. If you plant the seed of love, you will reap love from others. If you plant the seed of hate, you'll reap more hate. If you plant the seed of mercy, you'll receive mercy. But if you plant the seed of being judgmental, you will reap more judgment. If you plant nothing, you'll grow nothing. God doesn't operate on the getting something for nothing policy. That's why stealing is wrong. That's why the church opposes gambling. I think that's part of why pornography is wrong. It's sexual gratification without commitment. Also, drugs and alcohol. It's instant feelings of happiness without needing to do the work of living your life in a way that produces happiness naturally. And we could go on and on with examples like this. You reap what you sow. So, sow wisely. And the harvest will come. And there, there you have it. All right, some powerful power phrases from the book of Galatians for us to consider. I mean, I know that you could make an entire lesson out of each one of these verses individually. But I do like this approach because it allows you to cover all of them, at least in brief. And that will conclude our lesson from the book of Galatians this week. And I really, really hope that you found something helpful uh, within this book. And, and if you did find this video and these thoughts helpful in any way, then I invite you to reach out and share it with somebody else that you feel that it could help. Uh, I appreciate each of you out there so much for joining me each week. And I invite you to join me again next week. Teachers, if you're interested in the teaching resources that I create, go to teachingwithpower.com 
and you'll find links to those resources. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining me this week. Now get out there and teach with power.